Addressing the United Nations today, President Zelensky accused Moscow of war crimes, saying the UN is proving ineffective in stopping the violence because Russia is abusing its veto on the Security Council, preventing international action. Over the last 10 years, various events have undermined globalism and multilateralism, not only as a concept, but also as a system of global economy. Man-made events like Brexit, Trump's isolationism, and the swathe of populist leaders elected. That's not even to mention the impact of the COVID-19 lockdowns and travel bans. Even so, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a shocking rejection of the 21st century globalist order. The severity of the sanctions may have taken Russia by surprise. They would have been fully aware that there would have been immediate economic and political consequences. The invasion also asks questions of multilateralism in other, more fundamental ways. What is the worth of organisations like the UN and the EU if they can do nothing to prevent the atrocities? Are they doing enough on the ground? And how can they build consensus and start dialogue in such extreme circumstances? In this episode, I'll be exploring just that. This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast. And I'm Ned Sedgwick. First up, we'll be hearing from Saviano Abreu, United Nations spokesperson for the Office of Humanitarian Affairs in Ukraine. I want to find out what the UN can actually do in the face of this bitter war between two sides currently so intractable and opposed, and what they're actually doing on the ground. So Saviano, what exactly is the role of the UN within the war in Ukraine itself? In Ukraine, we did have an operation before the start of the Russia's invasion on 24th of February. We have been working in Ukraine since 2014. That is the moment that the conflict is starting in the east of the country, in the Donbass region. And we have been working here for all these years. The difference is that the scope of our work was very limited. We had operations in two regions, in two oblasts, as it's called here in Ukraine, in the east of the country, that is Luhansk and Donetsk oblast. And we are operating in this part on both sides of the front line, supporting people that were affected. Since the 24th of February, what we had to do since day one, it was expand our operation to make sure that we could reach people in the in all the regions of the country. The country has 24 oblasts. We had to very quickly make sure that we are present and able to support people in all the 24 oblasts, and so we did. Imagine actually being out in Ukraine working with the UN is quite dangerous. Can you tell us about some of the risks involved with your job? We are working in war zone, so I don't think it's difficult for any of us to imagine what is it to operate in an area that is being shelled all the time. We have bombs, we have missiles, uh, we have fighting, hostilities every single day. So operating this area is a very risky environment for any person that is here in Ukraine, for the population, for the people of Ukraine, first of all, but for us as well. So we have to deal with this kind of risk. We have a series of protocols on how we operate. But there is something that is very important to mention. The parties to the conflict, both the Russian Federation and the Ukrainian government, they have an obligation that comes under the international humanitarian law that they have to protect civilians first, of course, people that are in the country suffering because of this war, 
but us as humanitarians as well. So we are, are also civilians, we are part of the civilian population, but we are in a specific role that support people. So there is an obligation uh, for them to protect and to make sure that we can do our job in safety. Unfortunately, we know that it is not the reality in, in many parts of the world where we work. We have to negotiate any access to parties, uh, with the parties to, to, to the areas that they have, uh, is, are experiencing fighting. And uh, the reality on the ground is, is much more complex than only calling on the, on the parties to respect the law. So yes, it's a, it's, it's a war zone. So it's a difficult environment to, to operate. How many people does the UN have on the ground? And, and are they all UN employees or are they local Ukrainians hired to help? We have now with the UN Ukraine, humanitarians working for the UN Ukraine, around 1,300 people. Most of them are Ukrainians. Most of them are people that were here before the war and are people from this country that are supporting people f- uh, of the country. We do have as well some a number, I can't remember now specific numbers, I can give you, uh, of international staff that come on, with certain expertise to work in this kind of environment that came in to support the operation and also the great work of the NGOs, international and national NGOs that support our work here as well. We are on the ground operating and, and supporting the people. Uh, today, here in Ukraine, we have around 350 organizations, humanitarian organizations, being UN international NGOs, national NGOs, supporting the operation and working to support people uh, impacted by the war here. So before the, the 24th of February, this number was much lower uh, we're talking about around 70 organizations uh, uh, on average uh, before the 24th of February. So you can imagine how fast and uh, it was uh, the, the, the scale-up we managed to, to in four months, actually one month before the war, or more than 104 months now uh, since the, conflict, the, the war started, we have three, 350 organizations working here in Ukraine. How is the project funded? Is it all money coming from the kind of UN member states. Uh, uh, and in that case, is there a possibility that Russia and Belarus and other kind of antagonistic towards Ukrainian countries are, are actually funding the relief effort? The main sources of funding for the humanitarian operation in Ukraine are the member states of the United Nations. We have launched an appeal just after the 24th of February, on the 1st of March, you can imagine like four days after the start of the war, we launched an appeal asking for around a bit, a bit more than 1.7 billion, if my memory is not wrong, for the, for the response, for the, for the first uh, few months of the response. And we received uh, most part of this, of this money coming from the United Nations, for the United Nations member states, and they fund directly the organizations that are working here on the ground. On mid-April, we had to revise the figures. Uh, the conflict continued. The number of people in need of assistance kept growing, and we revised the appeal, and we launched, we, we launched a new appeal for $2.25 billion for the response. We are now at around 8% funded, but the situation keeps deteriorating. So we now, under revision again, uh, this war is far from, from, from an end. So we are revising, revising the figures and revising the appeal to make sure that we can continue our, our lives safe working here. But answering your questions, 
most part of the money of the funding comes from the members of the United Nations. It's a public that we have a public platform that the audience wants to to check is the FTS under the OCHA platform that we can go there and check specifically quantities that each country are uh, putting for the for the humanitarian operation. I also want to specify that this money that I'm talking about is exclusively for life safe operation, not talking about any contributions for the com- for the for the country bilateral con- con- contributions for the country or for fighters or for militias, nothing about that. I'm talking about money that is only to provide food, water, shelter, protection, education for these people that their lives were completely torn apart because of the war. I imagine there's there's a fair amount of misinformation directed at you. I mean, the most famous case of this is the White Helmets in Syria. How do you navigate this issue? Unfortunately, it's a reality, and it's a reality not only here. I think in this world that we live now, connected internet and information is easy, easy is fast, but sometimes not accurate, not verified. Um, um, and Ukraine is a highly connected country. People here, they use social media, they use internet. Uh, people on the move, people that are displaced, going somewhere, they they have connections, they have mobile phones, they know how to raise their voice if something is going wrong. But it also comes with, with uh, some problems. And we are also talking about two states, the Russian Federation and Ukrainian government with a big capacity uh, on, on communications. They also have a role to play on this as well. And unfortunately, not all is, is a neutral one. There are two, two countries that are uh, in a war, no? uh, uh, fighting each other. And yeah, misinformation is part, is part of this. And we see this on media, on social media, everywhere. So for us, our work is uh, at least try to make sure that people that are impacted by this war, they know their rights. They receive the information they need, what they can access on the humanitarian response, what they can expect from the UN and other humanitarian organizations here, what they can uh, complain about if they don't receive the, the, the assistance that they are entitled to. So we have some mechanism, we have um, hotlines that people can call us and say if something is wrong. We have uh, information on the different web pages of the UN system here but even in signal agencies as well. And we are now working on a com- common hotline uh, that we can have uh, uh, interagency, all the UN and NGOs together in the same number. So people that are calling, instead of calling different organizations, they call, can call one single number and uh, make sure they can ask questions and um, uh, be informed of their rights, of, the, of what we are doing and how they can uh, the support and access information. We already had a, um, I, I was mentioned before, Ukraine is a very is a highly connected ca- country and people use mobile phones, social media all the time. So we already have a, a chatbot as a, a program on mobile phone that people can ask questions. It's automatic. We receive the automatic response. Uh, it's already working and also has um, some uh, impact on, on talking about this, this misinformation that is going around here in Ukraine and about Ukraine everywhere in the world as well. This war is slightly unusual in the kind of post-war on terror era in that it's a, it's a war between two sovereign states rather than kind of a breakaway faction or breakaway region. How does an institution like the UN handle something that's so diplomatically sensitive, especially when you have to deal with both sides? Can you go between enemy lines and actually discuss things? 
Well, uh, it's a part of our mandate as the Office that coordinates the humanitarian response to sit with the parties to the conflict, all of them, to negotiate our operations on behalf of the humanitarian system. So it's part of our job. And we have to talk to everyone. So the Russian Federation, the government of Ukraine, and other um, affiliated uh, forces as well on the ground. And it's not an easy job. Um, you can imagine how it is. Uh, and with two powerful states, as we're talking, it's even more complicated. I cannot, of course, enter into, into the details of how we do this. and and But there are a bunch of um, strategies and tools that we use, being high-level conversations. Our Secretary General of the UN, in uh, Antonio Guterres, for example, he visited Moscow and Kiev uh, back uh, in the end of April to have some discussions. And one of the uh, most important things of the agenda of these discussions were exactly the humanitarian access to parties of parts of, of Ukraine that we could not go and could not access, assist people that were uh, in desperate need. So uh, as a result of, for example, of this specific uh, situation that I think everyone uh, in the world was highly uh, informed uh, what happened is that the, after the visit of the Secretary General, uh, we could go to Mariupol uh, and um, evacuate people that had been uh, stuck, stranded in the Azovstal plant and in the city and surroundings for more than two months back then. And we had been trying um, on the ground with high-level conversations as well, government of Ukraine, government of Russia, uh, in Moscow, on the ground with the parties, and we didn't succeed in, uh, and, and we had not progress, not have had any progress, and it was only when the Secretary General went to Moscow and to Kiev that we managed this. But on the ground, we also have conversations in different levels. We have different people having conversations. We have a, a, what we call an access working group that design these strategies and think uh, on the tools and the activities that we're going to have to make sure that we negotiate our safe uh, access to all areas of Ukraine. We also have something that is, uh, maybe it's nice to, to highlight, that is called the Humanitarian Notification System. It's a platform, it's an online platform um, that we have, um, and it works in different countries, not only here in Ukraine, we're starting here in Ukraine. We started some months ago, but now putting it, um, in a more, uh, increasing you know, the, the, the use of it, and we use this platform agreed with both parties, with the Russian Federation and with the government of Ukraine, to notify them of our movement. As I mentioned before, uh, the access for humanitarians is, is an obligation. Uh, the parties, they have to respect it. And there are many ways of doing it. They have, can open a humanitarian corridor. They can uh, declare a ceasefire during a certain period of time that we can go, or, or different times of the day during a certain period. There are many modalities. And um, if you don't have this kind of agreement, you know, the, the, the humanitarian notification system that I was mentioned, it's a platform that we put there, the log there, our movements, we notify, look, this day at this time, there is a humanitarian convoy with this number of trucks or cars or people going to this location. Uh, please make sure that no hostilities are going to take place in these uh, locations and time that we are going there. So we are using this platform. We send it to to both countries and notify them of our movement. Um, uh, it's still in an early phase. Let's see how 
is going to be the results of the of the response to us. Uh, so far, we managed to have some convoys of humanitarian assistance delivered to some areas that are complex and hard to, to reach. But we also had situations that we notified and we had some pushbacks and we are not able to go to areas that we should have gone and we need to go to support people already using this humanitarian purification system that I was mentioned before. Taking a wider lens view, it's important to know how the shockwaves of this war are going to impact multilateralism in an organisation born from war, the EU. Hi, I'm Papayan Bersen. I'm a research fellow in the Europe programme at Euro Chatham House. I started by asking Papayan whether he thought the war in Ukraine is bringing the EU new purpose, or whether it will worsen existing fault lines and it's just a mask for those underlying issues. Well, as ever with the EU, I think it's uh, a bit of both. Um, so on the one hand, um, we have seen quite um, a lot of movement uh, on the EU side when it comes to issues like sanctions and a sort of a very rapid response. And all the EU member states came together and very, um, very quickly moved on that. And we've uh, seen um, some things already uh, change. So Denmark, for instance, um, held a referendum just uh, a few months ago, uh, deciding to uh, move into uh, the common security and defense policy. Um, so that has given some sort of life to um, certain areas of the European integration. At the same time, like with every crisis that the um, EU has faced in, in recent years, it has um, also brought to the fore certain fault lines uh, within the EU. And so we're seeing a difference um, in response uh, between, in particular, sort of the Eastern and the Western member states. And for now, um, we're seeing quite a bit of unity still. But as the war drags on and as the, um, particularly the economic consequences uh, of the war become more clear, for instance, in energy prices, I think you'll start to see quite big gaps open up uh, between uh, the member states in uh, how far they're willing to go uh, to support Ukraine um, and to, for instance, punish Russia through um, uh, stopping uh, gas imports from Russia. Poland was recently withheld. COVID support uh, for backtracking on its pledges on the rule of law. Or the rule of law, however, after the invasion of Ukraine, the support was given to them. Like, is there a worry that ethical concerns and matters of principle will be eclipsed by the war within the EU? In the short term, that is very clearly the case. So um, uh, the European uh, Commission had been uh, uh, pushing back um, against Poland and Hungary. Uh, due to uh, what they saw as rule of law breaches um, over the last couple of years. And part of that was withholding funding uh, from the uh, EU's COVID recovery fund. And yes, they have, um, because of the position that Poland occupies uh, within this crisis, they have basically said, well, we're going to put that aside for now. I think that is where um, some of the more fundamental splits within the EU will um, uh, reveal themselves again. Once uh, the situation calms down again, you'll see a lot of pressure from certain parts of the EU to move back um, to pushing uh, back against uh, Poland when it comes to these kinds of issues. So uh, a few of the uh, Western member states, this is for them, this is really fundamental and it will be really difficult um, to keep up. um, Well, you know, we just leave these questions aside because of uh, um, uh, Poland's position when it comes to Ukraine. So I think this is a temporary truce. 
Um, but it, but that is really what it is, and that's not going to last um, indefinitely. Ukraine was recently put on candidate status, but how realistic is it that it will become a member? Even if the candidacy process moves along at a particularly rapid pace, it will take years and years before Ukraine will be an EU member. And I think there's even quite a significant chance that once hopefully the current conflict ceases and Ukraine's sort of territorial sovereignty is reinstated and it start, uh, Europe starts contributing to rebuilding of Ukraine and discussions on membership start in earnest, I think we might see that actually the same reasons why Ukraine wasn't really being considered for candidacy before the war will come back up. And we might find that actually this process drags on, drags on and drags on. Um, let's not forget that Turkey has been in this position for for decades. Um, and it's very well possible that that is where we end up. Um, at the same time, maybe um, uh, the, the, the current crisis will push them uh, for expedited membership but it's i think it's very difficult to say right now how that moves because so much of it's dependent on what happens on the ground in ukraine as well as the two other kind of candidates albania and north macedonia who who are balkan countries um near to a Russia sympathetic Serbia. I mean, Russia did, uh, Serbia did vote against Russia in the UN, but um, there, there is strong public support within Serbia for Russia, strong historical political ties. Um, with Albania and North Macedonia, is, is there, is there a, a sense that it might speed up their um, accession into the EU after it was kind of uh, denied at the last minute last time? I think, again, there we should be sceptical of uh, how fast uh, progress will be on uh, on membership. I think for large parts of the EU, what they're thinking about for a lot of the countries in that region, and basically any, th- any countries that aren't current members, is some different form of membership or something that comes close to membership but isn't quite membership, which is why you're now hearing, for instance... Um, uh, President Macron talk about something like an European political community. Um, and so that would entail being close to the EU, but not quite being a member of the EU. And so I think so the push towards those kinds of ideas, um, which are also partly aimed at getting the UK uh, partly back into the fold, um, I think that will mean that it's very hard for to get a country like France to sign off on actual membership status for um, also for North Macedonia or Albania. So I don't see that happening anytime soon either. And so going forward, what, what do you think the outlook for the EU is? I mean, it's kind of been buffeted by, by unprecedented uh, issues in the last 10 years, Brexit, Orban, Poland. Uh, what do you think the outlook is now? So in the short term, and I'm talking so the coming weeks and months, I think things look increasingly difficult, but still manageable. Once we start moving into the winter and um, the natural gas issue becomes even more pressing, I think you'll start to see even bigger splits within the member states and um, the pressure on some um, uh, to become higher and higher when it comes to um, just their energy supply. And um, so Russia is, of course, already squeezing that. 
natural gas prices um, by some measures are 30 times as high in Europe as they were two years ago. And so that's going to keep pushing up inflation. It's going to start uh, weighing on public support um, for uh, intervention um, in Ukraine or support for Ukraine. So I think it's just going to get harder and harder because it's particularly going to be the case in Germany, still probably the most influential member state, um, while those in the East are going to uh, want to continue supporting Ukraine. So I think the outlook for the EU in that regard looks a bit more challenging, um, particularly when it comes to uh, continued support for Ukraine. In the long run, I think all the underlying fault, uh, fault lines that were there within the EU, between East and West, between North and South, um, that we've seen sort of come up in the, the re, in the crises over the last, well, decade and a half now, those are all still there. And even if we've instituted a truce um, to deal with Ukraine, they haven't gone away. And so the, the outlook on the long run is still quite challenging for the EU. I found this episode much more optimistic in kind of heavy inverted commas than I thought I would, although that probably says more about how depressing I thought it would be rather than its purely uplifting nature. There's clear evidence that even with this conflict, negotiation, diplomacy, and maybe hardest of all, patience can lead to positive outcomes. I'm also in awe of the people in Ukraine putting their lives on the line in order to try and continue this dialogue. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Saviano Abreu and Pepine Bergson. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Nick Capling at Chatham House.